This episode sponsored by the Second City Training Center. Find your funny this week with a $20 improv drop-in class at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. Your first drop-in is on us. Use the code TESTDRIVE for a free improv drop-in any Sunday at 7 p.m. For more information, go to secondcity.com backslash TC or call 312-664-3959 to register. Two bodies lay in the warm Brazilian sun. Two bodies clad in two nice suits with two brand new raincoats worn over them. And just to the side of the bodies, two small lead masks lay in the grass on Vintame Hill. This is how Manuel de Cruz and Miguel Viana were found in August of 1966. And it was how police from the nearby town of Niteroy began an investigation, one that ended up creating more puzzles than it solved. A case of mysterious deaths turned into a case of mysterious deaths with ties to local spiritualists, followed by ties to a flurry of reported UFO sightings around the same time. Adding to the mystery, because at this point it needed more weirdness, was a note in the pocket of one of the men. Along with some numbers, part of it read, Be at the determined place. Ingest capsules. After effect, protect metals. Wait for mask signal. The story has weighed on amateur sleuths and ufologists alike for decades. Two bodies. Two masks and countless unanswered questions. We're taking a look at the lead masks of Vintame Hill on this episode of Blurry Photos. Hey everyone, I'm your host, David Flora. Welcome to Blurry Photos. Got a good one here for you, one that I almost skipped over till it started getting weirder and weirder. The research turns up just about the same story over and over, with a few small variations here and there, and I wanted to see if I could find a point of origin for them all. I found a couple, and that's not to say I'm the first person to find the earliest sources of this story, far from it, but I did find old Brazilian newspapers that were sourced for a story that ran in the 1966 November-December issue of Flying Saucer Review, and those newspapers pretty much confirmed the story told in the Little UFO magazine. A series of articles from that publication ran through 1967, each building on previous accounts and providing any updates that were found. And coupled with what I could find from contemporary news of the time, which involved a lot of translating of Portuguese, Those articles are trustworthy and paint an interesting picture, not of a fevered search for just UFO accounts, but of a fascinated amateur sleuth looking for any cracks in an unsolved case. It can be addictive, combing through evidence and piecing the puzzle together. What happened to these two men on that hill outside Niederoy? What did those masks in that note mean? Was there a supernatural or extraterrestrial component? Has it just been blown out of proportion? Well, I hope to address these questions and more in this episode. So don your deer stalker caps, get your crime scene photos to enhance, and we'll see if we can unmask the mystery 
of the lead masks. The offices of the Niederoy police were not quiet on Saturday, August 20th, 1966. Not even the streets of the small, rather affluent municipality which sat just across the bay from Rio de Janeiro was free of crime. Rio had seen a sharp uptick in gang violence and more since Brasilia had unseated it as the country's capital in 1960. So it may have come as no big surprise to officers when a few young men called on a station the afternoon of the 20th to report two dead bodies on Vintame Hill. Depending on the source, one of the boys, an 18-year-old, had either gone up Vintame while flying or looking for a kite, or was bird hunting when he noticed an overwhelming smell of putrescence. The source was the bodies of Miguel Jose Viana, 34, and Manuel Pereira de Cruz, 32, both from the town of Campos de Scoitacazes, about 260 kilometers northeast of there. An article in the March-April 1967 Flying Saucer Review said the boy had actually seen them sitting up there on Wednesday the 17th, around 5 p.m. He decided to return again on Thursday the 18th and saw them lying in the grass, but assumed they were asleep. When he passed by again on the 20th, it became obvious they were not simply asleep. The bodies were found lying next to each other in a thicket on the hill, one of the highest spots in the region. Both were dressed smartly in business suits, and each had a brand new raincoat on as well. Near the bodies, police found an empty bottle of mineral water, two wet towels, perhaps in a package or plastic, a notebook, and two homemade lead masks. Thankfully, in this case, it's not as creepy as, say, Leonardo DiCaprio's Iron Mask that he wore in that movie where he was a man and in it. These were thinly hammered lead pieces in the shape of sunglasses, but without the arms, or temples, technically. Unlike glasses, however, they were one solid piece, meaning there was no way to see when placed in front of the eyes. You'll hear these masks were covering the men's eyes when they were found, which would be a pretty creepy detail, if it were true. According to police, they were found just to the side of each body. Additionally, police found bus tickets from Campos to Niederoy and a receipt for the raincoats in one man's pocket, along with a return ticket for the water bottle and a watch. Miguel had 137,000 Cruzero in a plastic bag on him, and Manuel had 4,000 Cruzero in his pocket. Now this would be equivalent to about 495 US dollars today. There was no obvious cause of death. There were no signs of violence, no wounds, no blood, no signs of struggle. It was as if the men had laid down and gone to sleep and never woke up. Police and firefighters collected the bodies, in some accounts not getting there until the next day due to the terrain and weather. And Detective Jose Venancio Bittencourt began investigation into their unexplained deaths.
Police tried to retrace the last steps and appearances of the men while the bodies were sent for autopsy. The men had come by bus from Campos to Niederoy on August 17th. But in one account, the bus tickets found were apparently not torn. Meaning, if correct, they likely found another way to make the four-hour trip. According to the receipt, the raincoats had been purchased in Niederoy that day after 2.30 p.m. and the bottle of water from Bar des Relvis around 4.35 p.m. When the bartender was questioned, she mentioned the men seemed anxious, and Miguel kept checking his watch. They also opted for the deposit return ticket instead of a receipt for the bottle, intending, one would think, to bring the bottle back to get their money back for it. According to the August 26, 1966 issue of the Brazilian newspaper Ultima Hora, a watchman or police guard named Antonio Guerra, a resident at Vintame Hill, was told by the boys that the two men were up there on or around the 18th, but didn't investigate. Another resident, Raulino de Matos, claimed to have seen Miguel and Manuel get out of a jeep with two men and start the climb up the hill. Details were starting to take shape, but it was only the beginning. The notebook found along with the bodies provided, well, more confusion than clarification. The last entry said, 4.30 p.m., be at the determined place. 6.30 p.m., ingest capsules. After effect, protect metals. Wait for mask signal. The times seemed to correspond well with their last known appearances. Mask is mentioned in a determined place, meaning they apparently knew where they were going. Protect metals is odd, but could explain the watch that was not worn but found in a pocket. I've even heard that the watch and some of the metals were wrapped in the wet towels beside them, but I couldn't confirm that from any of the accounts. And then we get a curveball. Ingest capsules. This naturally begs the question, what kind of capsules? Poison? Drugs? Brain Force Plus? Super male vitality now available at alexjones.freedom.us slash loveyourfamily? Certainly, with no signs of violence at the crime scene, poison was now the frontrunner for cause of death. Luckily, the autopsy report was due any day, which should complete an important part of the puzzle. But, well, about that. The coroners were a bit overcrowded, overwhelmed, and understaffed. Not only was an autopsy not done immediately, it was apparently several days or more before they got to it. And to top that off, cold storage was full, so the bodies weren't even stored properly. And that's in addition to laying on a hill for almost three days. When the report came in, lo and behold, no toxins had been found in the badly decomposed organs, and cause of death was ruled a cardiac arrest. Frustrating. There is one passage in an Ultima Aura article that says police were following up on a spot of blood found near the bodies, but I found nothing addressing that afterwards. 
Looking back through the notebook, other directions were found leading up to the one about the mask signal. Sunday, one capsule after lunch. Wednesday, one capsule at bedtime. There was also a page full of numbers, which were variously theorized as being everything from electronic formulae to encrypted cipher. At that point, it only added to a growing list of questions. Following one hypothesis, the police brought a Geiger counter to the area to check for radioactivity, but found none. The thought was that the lead masks were there to protect from radiation, but only protecting the eyes doesn't do squat for the rest of the body. So that's a swing and a miss. Some reporters asked around to try and figure out the lead mask connection. Speaking to electronic technicians, they were told that some lead masks could protect eyes from quote-unquote radio frequency shocks. Interestingly, this had a connection to the men. As the case deepened, the police learned that Miguel and Manuel were electronics technicians back in Campos. In contemporary news articles, they were sometimes also referred to as television technicians because they had worked on installing an image repeater station in Campos. Co-workers and friends, both men were married with young families and in good standing in their community. Police learned that the men had pooled a great deal of money together in the days leading up to the trip to Niederoy, some three million cruzeros, which I think would be almost 10,500 US dollars today. Before they left on the 17th, they told their families they needed to buy some electronics equipment. One account said they ran into Miguel's uncle at a bus stop and told him they were going to buy a car down in Niederoy. It struck the uncle as odd, since it would be much more expensive down there, but they added there was other business to attend to. Another account said Miguel told a relative that, quote, he would soon be carrying out an important mission, but that it was secret. Miguel's father, Amaro Viana, told police that Miguel had seemed restless of late and preoccupied by the idea of making an electronic experience of undisclosed nature. Police found lead sheets and cutting materials in Manuel's garage, and Manuel's widow, Nella de la Cruz, told police that her husband was making the masks when she asked what they were for. He simply told her they would be used for work he and Miguel would do later in Sao Paulo. Additionally, she said she had been present when there was a quarrel between Manuel and an assistant of the men, Elcio Gomez, and boom, a wild suspect appears. Police were quick to arrest Gomez and bring him in for questioning. Finally, maybe some answers to all these questions. <laughs> you fools. If only you'd have recognized the pattern sooner. For leads in this case only give us more questions. And like uncovered chili in the microwave, this lead was all over the place. Gomez, in some accounts a civilian airline pilot, spoke about a supposed experiment carried out by the men in the months prior to their deaths. From a passage in the Flying Saucer Review of March-April 1967. It seems that with others, Gomez had gone down to Atafona Beach on June 13th 
at the invitation of Miguel and Manuel. They had just arrived when an intensely luminous object came down over the shore. Five minutes later, when it began to rise, there was a blinding flash and an explosion which rocked the city of Campos and buildings far beyond. When inquiries were made, local fisherfolk testified they had seen a flying saucer fall into the sea. At this stage, we begin to read in the reports that the Brazilian Naval and Air Force Intelligence Services were taking an interest in both the deaths and the explosions. In the very last report we have on the case, appearing in the newspaper O Cruzeiro of September 16th, there was a story that the Navy's monitoring service had intercepted a strange conversation over the air between three radio hams on the evening of June 12th. The station prefixes were CKJ-22 and CK-22, who were talking to CKJ-21. Details of the conversation were not disclosed, but investigations had shown that no such prefixes existed in the register of amateur radio transmitting stations in Brazil. Apparently, it was not the only explosive experiment they had attempted. According to Ultima Ora, Manuel's father, Sebastião Pereira de Cruz, said Manuel, Miguel, and Elcio had been involved in another explosion outside his home in Campos. The three had fled in terror without explanation, he claimed. The next day, he found fragments of iron and lead scattered in the yard, but Manuel would not tell him anything about it. So, now there were experiments and a flying saucer? But wait, there's more. Gomez's story changed a bit after that, raising suspicions on his involvement. He claimed to be a scientific spiritualist, interested in using electronic equipment to contact extraterrestrials, or possibly spirits. He said Miguel and Manuel were as well, having had seances in their homes, and that Miguel also practiced going into trances and attempting telepathy. These allegations were more or less confirmed with an account that police allegedly found a notebook in Miguel's home that spoke of, quote-unquote, intense luminosity when in contact with spirits or ETs. Gomez apparently also told police that Manuel and Miguel ran a clandestine radio station in Glicerio, almost halfway between Campos and Rio. It's almost like the fog starts to lift and then reveals a thicker fog. On August 31st, the newspaper Folha de Sao Paulo published an interview with a professor of yoga who made the suggestion that the men had been experimenting with LSD, or maybe mescaline, in order to carry out telepathic trials with high-frequency thought waves. Apparently, this was not an unheard-of thing in the spiritualist community there at the time. And we're not done. According to the Journal de Brazil of August 25, 1966, a Gracinda Barbosa Coutinho de Sousa had been driving with her children in Fonseca, a district near Niderói, on the night of August 17th, when she saw an oval-shaped, orangey object with a band of fire around its edges, sending rays out in all directions over the top of Ventame Hill. She went on to say it rose and fell vertically for some three or four minutes. She drove home to tell her husband, Paolo Roberto, 
who left dinner on the table to jump in the car and go to the observation point and check it out. He saw nothing, however. Some accounts say there were additional details Signora de Sousa gave the police, but they kept it secret. The de Sousas were, by all accounts, reliable and highly regarded, and once news of her UFO sighting came out, numerous others were said to have flooded the police stations. I was not personally able to find any of these in any papers, but Flying Saucer Review maintained they had received several reports at the time. The UFO fervor angle of the case even caught the attention of famous ufologist and author Jacques Vallée, who investigated firsthand in 1980. And I had the opportunity to go to uh, Rio in uh, 1980, and by then the case was was already you know, fairly old, but the uh, Rio police was reopening, already reopening the investigation, and I had a chance to go up to up that, that hill. What we saw was, of course, the vegetation had changed somewhat, but the, the spot where the bodies had been found was still bare. I mean, there was no, no grass there. Um, it was uh, you know, very clear that something very, very unusual had happened there. Evidently, they were part of a group that was doing experiments of some sort, uh, experiment with electronics and uh, also experimenting with explosives. Um, whether that was related to their belief in extraterrestrials, uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer. It's, I don't know of any other case where um, victims were found with lead masks. What I'm very intrigued with is the series of reports by people who were independently saw some lights over the, the hill at the time of uh, the approximate time when the two men died. Still one of the most puzzling cases in the, in the archives of, uh, of UFO investigation. So we started with two unfortunate deaths on a hillside with some weird lead masks. Now we have explosions, spiritual experimentation, and flying saucers. Where do you even start to make sense of this thing? Brazilian newspapers of the day certainly latched on to any angle they could in their efforts to demystify the case. Any hypothesis the police could come up with was grabbed for the headlines, including an early one that Miguel and Manuel were lovers and entered into a homosexual suicide pact. It was quickly dismissed, though, as those who knew them testified as to their heterosexuality and when held against the fact that the bottle deposit ticket was kept, indicating they probably meant to return it, the idea of suicide seemed pretty weak. Likewise, it didn't really add up for an explanation of some kind of cult suicide or something similar. This thought came from the spiritist angle, that perhaps the men killed themselves while trying to reach a higher state of consciousness, or attain contact with ETs, not unlike the Heaven's Gate cult of the late 90s. The yoga professor's statements about experimental drugs would be connected to this. Unfortunately, 
no one came forth to confirm or deny practices like this, but it still seems odd to keep a return deposit ticket if you're expecting a one-way trip. That deposit doesn't automatically rule out a one-way trip, obviously, but it does give pause to the thought. Something that has added to the baffling nature of the case was dug up by Flying Saucer Review's Charles Bowen in the March-April 1967 article. Although he didn't cite a source, he mentions an earlier case that was eerily similar. A television technician, simply referred to as Hermes, was found dead in 1962 on Cruzero Hill near Neves, which I believe is a little ways north of Niederoy. Found next to his body, a lead mask. Another early explanation put forth was that the men had been killed by lightning. The August 25th edition of Ultima Ora claimed the police had spoken to electronics experts and come up with the idea that the men were hit by lightning while researching a spot to install a tower to extend the range of their television reception back in Campos. The masks would apparently have been parts used to form a magnetic field to aid antennas. A magnetic field that could have attracted lethal lightning. A nearby resident had also allegedly witnessed lightning during a storm that week, as well as an electronic discharge on the hill. The sticking point here is that despite, or possibly due to, the advanced stage of decomposition, the bodies showed no signs of injury. Certainly a lightning strike would have left a mark, especially if fatal, though I admit I'm not certain of that, but nowhere in the reports does it speak of clothing being damaged or what are called Lichtenberg figures, the fern-like marks caused by a strike in the skin. But with decomposition, who knows what evidence had disappeared before autopsy. The uncertainty and holes in the story led to the UFO connection gaining popularity. With numerous alleged sightings in the area at the time, some people believed the men were visited by ETs. The fact that they didn't survive the visit has been debated, with some saying they were ill-prepared for contact and others saying they were killed as revenge because their Atafona Beach experiment had shot down a different UFO. I guess the ETs had mastered interstellar travel, but never mastered their emotions. Unfortunately, all we have as evidence for this one are anecdotes. That they were trying to contact Mars, and that Signora de Souza saw a saucer craft. It would be nice to have some solid evidence, which I guess would be photos or videos from the encounter. But alas... I've even seen the theory that they were time travelers, but I have to ask, why, though, why, but why? They had families and lives here, so if they went into the future, how did they do it, and what killed them? Ah! From the outset of the case, the one explanation that was absolutely aching to be said was straight-up, cold-ass murder. The men's lives and how they ended up just didn't jive together, unless you got a little mirth or rope to tie them together. But who done it? And why? 
and Hell's Bells were still standing at square one. Was there any indication they were involved in something seedy and not exactly above board? Some thought those numbers in the notebook were secret codes, and the men had engaged in some kind of espionage. As I said before, criminal activity was on the rise in Rio at the time. Perhaps the men decided to involve themselves in devious dealings, and ended up on the bad side of a deal gone wrong. This could certainly gel with the report that they were to be at a certain spot at a certain time, that they appeared anxious, and that they were seen in a jeep with two other men. One hang-up in the espionage idea is that the numbers in the notebook weren't secret code, but simply part numbers for electronic equipment. Not as sexy, no. Maybe they were parts they wanted to buy on the black market? It's hard to say. Their ties to spiritism led some to think they may have been duped into meeting a magic healer, or witch doctor of sorts, someone whose only intention was to con them and take their money, and their lives. This could explain the missing cash, and possibly the capsules, if they ended up being some kind of poison. Ultima Ora ran a story on August 19, 1967, a year later, that said the police were looking for a car that had possibly carried the men's bodies to be dumped on Ventame Hill, meaning they would have been killed elsewhere and brought there to throw off investigators. It's entirely possible the bodies were dumped, but it doesn't jive with the accounts of the boy seeing them multiple times and the bartender seeing them the supposed day they died. A week later, the same paper had a quote from a new investigator, Sergio Rodriguez, who said, quote, important pieces of evidence were disregarded at the start of the inquiry and are now being used by my team. Although I have not yet got the clues to clear up the case, I do believe that in a few days time, I will be able to hand the guilty party over to the judicial authorities, end quote. He went on to have the men's bodies exhumed from their graves back in Campos for one more round of chemical testing. And once again, nothing was found in any of the samples, and the case remained unsolved. In quite the twist of events, the case was abruptly closed in 1969 when an apparent confession of accessory to murder came from an inmate in a Sao Paulo prison. Claiming the, quote, underworld figure Hamilton Benzani had confessed, the Flying Saucer Review of July-August 1971 said... Hamilton Benzani, notorious criminal, smuggler, and car thief, already serving a sentence of over 50 years in Sao Paulo, had told a woman relative of his who lives in Rio that he had been connected with the murders, and when interrogated, freely admitted it. He said when he was wanted by the Sao Paulo authorities, he was hiding in Rio de Janeiro when he was approached by three other criminals who asked him to do a job in Niteroi, which would yield good dividends for the four of them. They traveled to a spiritualist center in Niteroi, where they met the proprietor, a woman called Helena. Benzani was then introduced to Miguel and Manuel, who were already there. They were to be the targets. During the seance which followed, 
The criminals learned that Miguel and Manuel were in Niteroy en route from their home at Campos to Sao Paulo, where they planned to buy electronic equipment and a new car, and that they had plenty of cash on them. Benzani said at the close of the seance, he was instructed to get in a car waiting outside and drive the four criminals, Helena, Miguel, and Manuel, to the foot of the Moro du Ventame. There, the others forced the two men to get out and go with them into the thickets on the hillside, while Hamilton Benzani stayed with the car, which was stolen. Half an hour later, the three criminals and the woman returned to the car, looking nervous. Holding a briefcase containing 6,000 cruzeros, one man said, we've killed them both. We forced them at revolver point to take the poison. The party then drove off to Guanabara. The police say they're on the track of the group and will have no difficulty in apprehending them as they are notorious criminals. I'm sure you don't need the spoiler alert, but this was apparently never followed up by any articles. At least, not that anyone has found. So, a guy already in prison confessed to being a driver of the Murdidly Erderers. Convenient for him. And convenient for police, who could finally say, Case closed, get off our backs, we have bodies stacking up we need to move on to. I don't know about you, but on the surface, it sounds pretty good. There were several things that matched with the early accounts, and an explanation for the lack of violence at the crime scene, and the missing cash. Not everyone agrees with how pretty a bow this ties it up with, however. In fact, according to the Flying Saucer Review article, the Brazilian correspondence smelled something fishy about the story from the get-go. The article cites an anonymous source as saying the explanation was straight-up faked and pointed to a couple reasons as to why. Apparently, Brazilian authorities had started a crackdown of sorts against UFO investigations around that time, and this article served to indicate a normal, unfantastic explanation to a case that had UFOs as one of its top theories. Also noted was the possibility of this Hamilton Benzani, who some have claimed might not have even existed, giving a false confession in a deal that might have granted him a shorter sentence or at least a transfer to a less secure prison. Now, there was a random article in the June 1968 edition of the paper O Globo that brought up the case and mentioned witnesses claiming to see a blonde man sitting in a jeep at Ventame talking to Manuel and Miguel the day before they were found. Was this a setup to the eventual confession that would run in papers, or proof that Benzani was telling the truth? It's hard to say. It's all hard to say. Especially when you read a couple different accounts of something that could have a huge bearing on the case, as in the example of what they supposedly told to relatives. There was one account that said the men told Miguel's uncle they were going to buy a car, and another that said they were expecting to experience an important spiritual revelation on their trip. Another example is that of the writing in the notebook. Miguel's relatives claimed the writing in the notebook was not his. Other sources say it was his. I think there's a picture of the notes, so theoretically it could be possible to compare handwriting but you can see how frustrating it can be to piece the story together. 
The first English article, supposedly, was the London Evening Standard, which reported that an anonymous call tipped the police off to the deaths. The next article was a 1966 Aerial Phenomena Research Organization bulletin, with no mention of how they were found. The first Flying Saucer Review article references the London article. The next articles say a boy found them. It's tough. Tough to sort through. And what's the deal with the allegedly missing money? Police decided it was more than likely stolen. However, the August 25th Ultima Aura reported the men may have used most of it to purchase equipment in Niederoy prior to their deaths, according to an alleged friend by the name of Travessa Alberto Vitor. It's not a bad theory, especially since they still had a bit of money on them when they were found. I mean, if it was thievery, why take almost all the money? Another question, who gave them the directions? Did they come up with a plan themselves, or was there another person directing them? And by directions, I mean what time to meet, when to ingest the pills, what to do with the masks. And what were in those pills? We can't be 100% certain they took anything, but capsules were mentioned more than once in the notebook. Man, questions, questions. Honestly, I'm not sure which way I lean for this one. Like many things in reality, it's probably some complex combination of things. A little spiritism here, some electronics experiments there, a dash of clandestine dealings, and a pinch of criminal activity. Any theory you pick seems to have just enough info to seem plausible, but not enough to seem probable. What a coquettish lover of a case. It really seems like the pieces are there to be assembled, yet they refuse to fit together. You can almost taste the answer, but like walking in a room and immediately forgetting why you did, you're just left shaking your head and feeling like a dope. At this point, I'm not sure what kind of proof would solve the case. Even confessions can be suspicious and with questionable sources or motives. This one might have to be shelved under unexplained and stamped unsolvable. And that's okay. Sometimes we can't answer all the questions. And we make peace with that. And hopefully these unfortunate men who lost their lives can find peace as well, in spite of all the questions left unanswered on the morrow du Vintame. That's the lead masks of Vintame Hill in a strange, unsettled, Brazilian nutshell. Like I mentioned in the beginning, a case like this can get addictive, feeling like you're right on the cusp of finding out some info that has been glossed over or turning a stone that's been left unturned. If you'd like to look more into it, I'll have in the show notes links to articles and newspapers from the early accounts. Get out your Portuguese translators, you'll need them. Thanks to Blurriever Stephen and the Bromsgrove bloke for their help in trying to track down some articles as well. If you want to try your hand at Sherlocking this case up, good luck, and let me know what you find.
and let's not get too preoccupied with criminal and UFO activity and sadly unanswered questions. Far too often we follow a lead on a case only to find out we've been duped into tracking puns. Rio police in 1966 were having trouble concentrating on their cases because they couldn't get a catchy new tune out of their heads. They kept singing, Muller Bonita, Andado Pelorua, Muller Bonita, by Niederoy Orbison. There was once a criminal who saw an opportunity to further his ambitions while in prison so as not to throw away his shot, he made up a confession about a murder that he was in the jeep where it happened, though critics were never truly satisfied with his story. Of course, I'm talking about Alexander Hamilton Benzani. Thanks again for joining me on this episode. Thanks for the emails that have come in, too. I appreciate the funnies and the show suggestions. Shout out to Ken's wife, Sheila. Good to hear from you. And to Riley and the Nielsens. And good luck on your album. Please make sure to like and follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Slap a big old wet five-star review on my iTunes or wherever you catch the pod. Don't forget to show your support for the show on patreon.com slash blurry photos where you can get an extra episode a month, plus hang out with me and other blurrievers in a live chat and or grab some classic intros and sound effects. Get yourself a free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash blurry photos. The book is on me, as well as a free 30-day membership. Don't like it? Cancel any time, and keep the book. The Dark Tower movie's out on video now. Here's a tip. Skip it, and grab the audiobook of it. Then you'll enjoy it. (laughs) Thanks to the Chicago Podcast Co-op and the great collection of Chicago-based shows. And thanks to the Dark Myths Collective, one of which is the Secret Transmission Podcast. Here's a quick promo for my friends over at that one. My name is Toby, and I'm the host of the Secret Transmission Podcast. We are a show that discusses the paranormal, conspiracies, the supernatural, UFOs, cryptozoology, and anything else weird. Our show is transmitted to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. You can also follow us on Twitter for updates, at Secret Transpod. So get ready to put on your tinfoil hats and come learn with us as we try to explain the unexplainable. So check those guys out as well as the Dark Myths podcast feed itself. May is upon us, so be on the lookout for nine cryptids to be waltzing through in this year's Miss Cryptid Contest. Excited to start that. And I think that'll do it for this episode of Blurry Photos. I have been David Florio de Janeiro. Bye.